Next on the Sean Morgan Report, we have Joel Kausten. who's giving us his analysis on the war in the Middle East. We are going to question the mainstream narrative and expose media propaganda right now. That's a great question. That's a good question. Great question. That's a great question. Well, that's a, a really good question. It's a great question. Well, you're right. It is great to have Joel Kausten, the editor of the World Affairs Brief, with us. So, Joel, I've read your analysis on the war in the Middle East. It's very nuanced, uh, including the fact that it seems pretty obvious that Israel allowed this type of uh, attack to initiate this war. Uh, And uh, why would they do that? You were mentioning, I believe, a, a faction of Israel has a deep state, just like in our country, we have a faction of the U.S. that is deep state. And so they were the ones that allowed that attack. Could you give us your analysis there? Yes. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, is a a, a globalist. He's a Henry Kissinger uh, protege. Henry Kissinger and Associates paid for his education in the United States they set him up in Wall Street for his first job, and then he set him up in politics in Israel by allowing him to uh, create a, an anti-terrorism worldwide conference in Israel to which all the uh, uh, bigwigs in uh, U.S. politics attended. Anybody can do that in Israel is an instant hero in Israeli politics. That's how he got his start. Um, so uh, marching to a globalist agenda, which is a lot about creating wars and, and, and conflicts so that you can talk your own citizens into something that they would otherwise not, uh, um, not accept uh, is standard fare. And of course, this, you know, Netanyahu and Israel claims was their own 9-11. It was different than our 9-11 in the sense that um, um, you know, our own deep state actually created it. They hired the terrorists. They loaded the buildings with explosives. Uh, they used um, high-tech technology to remote control airplanes that the, that the hijackers could not fly. Having, And I can tell you as a fighter pilot that you wouldn't even know how to turn off the autopilot in an airliner if you'd trained on a Cessna and, and, and failed at that training to boot. <clears throat> but in this case, um, this was not actually created. Hamas was... I mean, Hamas has given funding and uh, initially helped create Hamas in the Gaza Strip as a counterbalance to the PLO under Yasser Arafat. Um, and they continue to fund uh, Hamas through Qatar, uh, which is where, uh, which houses the Hamas leaders in luxury and five-star hotels, which they do nothing about to try to capture for humanitarian purposes. But uh, in any case, um, uh, Hamas had been planning this for over a year. In fact, the New York Times got the leaked intelligence that the U.S. had or that the Israeli intelligence had for over a year, which the Israeli intelligence claimed in response to the New York Times article that they dismissed because it was, quote, aspirational, meaning that they didn't think Hamas could do it. Now, they know better than that. Hamas uh, had 10 years to prepare for this attack and... uh, There was all kinds of other intelligence confirming it was coming, including private intelligence sources, which the IDF provided equipment to to over to uh, eavesdrop on cell phone conversations throughout Gaza, which he continued to warn Israel that this attack was coming. And they finally took his equipment away and told him to shut up because they don't want to hear it. 
They also moved the Israeli um, Gaza battalion, 80% of it they moved out of uh, southern Israel into the West Bank, now putting Israeli quick uh, response troops more than seven hours away from being able to respond. And all of that confirmed that this was, in fact, a stand down to allow it to happen so that they could not respond in a timely manner. And that's how they started. And as to the question, Sean, about why, I initially thought in in my World Affairs Brief uh, article covering this that um, it was to provoke a wider war with Iran since Iran is the primary sponsor of the military equipment in both uh, Hezbollah in Yemen, uh, the the Houthis, and in Gaza. but uh, Iran didn't take the bait, even though Israel has been attacking Iranian militia in Syria for the past two years. They've never arisen to take retaliatory measures against Israel um, because they're not ready yet to tackle. They know that the West will piggyback on that attack, and uh, uh, so they're not ready to take on the entire West. So they didn't rise to the bait. It has not expanded into a wide, wider war. So that leaves Israel with the vow that they're going into Gaza to eliminate Hamas militarily. And as a military expert, I don't think that's feasible, frankly. I think when you have the network of underground tunnels that they have, which are over 400 kilometers, it's very difficult to ferret out them all, though they have gotten a great deal of them. Uh, But you're talking about at most 50,000 troops in Hamas in a sea of 2.3 million people in an urban jungle, and that's very, very difficult to eradicate. If you don't eradicate them all, this war is going to create, of course, many more thousands of Hamas uh, activists, which will then swell the ranks. And there'll be another hiatus uh, like there was last time of five or six years before another attack. So I think... uh, the cost in civilian life is not worth uh, the fact, though you have to you have to go after your enemies, I mean, to be sure. But clearly, they're choosing the route that minimizes uh, military casualties and maximizes civilian casualties by using aerial bombardment uh, when Hamas is generally underground. Right. And destroying the infrastructure, uh, is it going to be a livable place by the time Israel is done with it? Well, you know, what happens in these things is the international community ends up footing the bill of rebuilding all these uh, countries. So it's not livable right now. Um, But only about, oh, I would say 20 percent of the buildings are probably destroyed in uh, in northern Gaza. And they're now in southern Gaza doing a lot of uh, destruction of of infrastructure. Um, The international community, including the U.S., will have to... uh, uh, rebuild everything at great expense. And, you know, they end up importing a lot of explosives and other things under the guise of construction and military equipment. So the cycle of violence will will continue. And what's worse is that the world, one of the globalist agenda in creating war in other countries is to create refugee flows so that they can interdict in Western culture and water it down with Muslim culture and other conflicting cultures, which don't... Uh, lead to greater peace, as we're finding out in Europe and in the United States. So uh, there are left-wing refugee organizations pushing for massive acceptance of Palestinians within the United States, and that's going to bring in a lot of hatred against the U.S. for supporting Israel. 
Right. It's a very divisive issue in the U.S. It seems like uh, the left and the right can't really seem to figure out which side they're on. They're not united necessarily, although you have more of the evangelical right that sides with Israel and you have more of the radical leftists that side with uh, Hamas, basically. But it's not totally united. And, and you see Biden trying to play both sides, which is very uh, strange to, to watch the president do. Uh, so, but let's get back at the bigger picture that Israel wants a war with Iran. They tried to bait them. They didn't take the bait. So Israel or one faction of Israel thinks they're ready to take on uh, Iran. Uh, but you've had a few neocons, a few people talk about doing an unprovoked attack, um, a first strike on Iran. Uh, what's the likelihood in your mind of that happening soon? Well, Israel has been practicing an attack on Iranian nuclear facilities now for over two years. They do simulated uh, aerial interdiction and bombardment using electronic jamming techniques to be able to get through Iran's radar uh, early warning systems. So we know they're actively prepared for such an attack. But I don't think they want to have the image of being the aggressor in this. And so they've wanted to have a provocation. They've wanted to induce or get Iran to retaliate so that they could go after them. And that hasn't happened. So if you go in, they have to build a bigger uh, narrative about the danger of Iran's nuclear program. Now, it's true that Iran is building towards a nuclear weapon. Israel already has nuclear weapons, and they feel like they need them to be able to counterbalance that. But I think you'll probably find a leak somewhere that Israel will claim that they're about ready to unleash a nuclear weapon, and that will justify a strike. They'll have to have some rationale for going in unprovoked, and I think that's what it'll be. It'll be a nuclear threat. And how might this um, ripple effect occur throughout the Middle East? Which sides, uh, which countries will feel obligated to take sides uh, and let's talk about the bigger players uh, like Saudi Arabia, uh, the United States, of course. Uh, where do you think the EU and NATO would land on this? Well, first of all, the United States keeps troops in Iraq unnecessarily and Syria to act as bait for Iran. Uh, and our American troops don't know that. Uh, we're really illegally in Syria. There's no reason for us to be in Syria. Syria has never been an antagonist. In fact, we imported the terrorists <clears throat> into Syria. Uh, that was the effect of having bombed Libya and Tunisia and, uh, and going after Gaddafi as we created a wave of Muslim terrorists, which we imported and moved into Iraq. Then we took 50% of those and, and retitled them as ISIS, gave them priority. I'm talking about we in the sense of the American deep state. ISIS was a total American creation of the deep state based upon 50% of the uh, Arab terrorists. And so we've used terrorism as an excuse to occupy the northern oil fields of Syria, denying Syria the money to be able to rebuild. And we're continuing to occupy areas of Iraq, even though the Iraqi parliament has refused to reauthorize that. We're there in spite of Iraq, uh, a refusal to agree. And so, and, and I think we're doing that to provide bait uh, so that our soldiers get bloodied by Iran and therefore justifies a U.S. intervention. If the U.S. intervenes, and then Saudi Arabia will probably intervene because Iran and Saudi Arabia don't have an amicable relationship at all. 
Uh, and if Saudi Arabia joins the battle against Iran, they'll get attacked either. Now, Iran will be a formidable military. Uh, uh, it's no pushover. By, I mean, it has a formidable Navy and it has a huge amount of missiles and things. So uh, the U.S. is going to take casualties in this war and so will Israel. And Hezbollah will get involved as well. Um, and Hezbollah re- has not done but token attacks on Israel, and they've got probably 300,000 missiles in Hezbollah they can launch at Israel and overwhelm the Iron Dome and Aero system, uh, uh, Israel's self-defense forces. And you've got the BRICS nations with their economic alliance, and, and it makes you wonder if they really are a military alliance as well, specifically, of course, uh, Russia and China, would they be on the sidelines for this type of conflict? Or do you think they would play a role supplying uh, intelligence and munitions uh, at the very least? Well, right now, Russia, uh, you know, is gearing up for in, in a full wartime economy. Right now, they've geared up uh, to full missile production and wartime artillery production. Most of that's being used up in Ukraine. So how much extra they would have to add to Iran's art. But remember, Russia is using Iranian drones already and some of their missiles. Uh, I don't think China and Russia would want to get drawn into this. I think they would like to see this as a means of drawing down U.S. and Israeli military capacity as we're seeing the Ukraine war sap uh, Russia's conventional military capacity rather than join it actively. When Russia and China do join or get into an attack on the West, they're going to begin not with a conventional military armored attack on NATO or Europe. They'll uh, start with a a preemptive nuclear missile strike on U.S. and NATO military forces trying to blackmail the West into submission. That's a very bold prediction. I want to ask you about that. We are going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll, we'll dive into the grand strategy of play. The world is about to shift. Banks are going cashless globally with the emergence of central bank digital currency, which will bring with it programmable money and the ability to turn on or off your purchasing power based on your digital social profile. It's like the equivalent of spyware in your bank account. You need to get out of the system with the world's safest and most private assets, silver and gold. Call Kirk Elliott, PhD, 720-605-3900. We are talking to Joel Skousen of World Affairs Brief about the conflict in the Middle East and how that could play out, perhaps Russia and China uh, getting involved or maybe waiting it out. Uh, You did mention the idea that there could be a first strike uh, on U.S. military bases, nuclear first strike from uh, Russia, China. Um, Why why would they choose to do that? You mentioned uh, blackmail to get us to just submit right away. Do you think that would work? Well, I don't think it will work, but let me go through the rationale of my theory on this. First of all, um, to apply any conventional military strategy to Russia and China is really not wise. Why would they use a Ukraine-type strategy with tanks rolling into Western Europe when they can't even occupy Ukraine right now? Uh, You see, that's the big problem. Why not use your nukes to neuter the opposition's military, 
and then either try to blackmail and if they don't respond to the blackmail to give in, then you can go to conventional warfare and the U.S. and NATO would be far less capable of waging that war after absorbing a nuclear first strike. That's the rationale for that. But Russia and China have to have a trigger event. They don't want to be uh, to appear as the aggressors. And so the most likely trigger events for World War III are really uh, Taiwan or South Korea in a war with North Korea. And these have become intertwined since North Korea has threatened that if the U.S. tries to intervene and stop China from taking back Taiwan, that they will intervene in the war and attack not only U.S. forces in the Pacific, but South Korea as well. And Seoul is within artillery range of North Korean artillery tubes. And so uh, they can really obliterate that city with, um, within a matter of weeks with artillery fire alone. And, of course, nuclear uh, North Korea claims to have nuclear weapons as well, which I, I don't doubt that they that they don't have. So here's how I think that might play out. Now, a likely scenario is that the U.S. could be overcommitted in Ukraine and in an Iran war if that starts up. And that might induce China to start their attack on Taiwan, knowing that the U.S. would be hard pressed to be able to handle a two or three front war. And if they do intervene... And North Korea then, and by the way, North Korea is a total puppet state of China. They won't start an attack no matter what Kim Jong-un threatens to do unless China gives the go-ahead. But if the North Koreans attack South Korea, the U.S. has, now this is what's different in Ukraine and in Israel. Uh, the U.S. doesn't have troops in Israel and doesn't have troops in Ukraine, at least except for a few secret advisors. But we do have 26,000 troops in South Korea, and the U.S. would be required to come to their defense if North Korea uh, uh, attacks South Korea. And so if we attack North Korea in defense of South Korea, <coughs> that's an excuse for China then to launch a preemptive nuclear strike to stop those attacks. And they would basically and, attack and all of our – yes, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. What would, what would be their objective? They're trying to destroy our equipment and our men? Right. Or what? They're, not, they're not after attacking cities because, you see, they want to occupy both North uh, or U.S. and Canada. Uh, China's run out of living space. They've run out of agricultural space. It's mostly desert in China. They can hardly feed their people, especially with periodic famines and floods and things that uh, flood the various agricultural lands. And uh, General Hao, uh, Hao Tien, the former defense minister, uh, in a speech in 2011, did threaten. Now, this was leaked to the press through the Epic Times, an anti-communist Chinese outfit in the United States, telling how they're going to be ruthless. They want to cleanse the nation of people. If they can't do it by biological warfare, they want to do it by occupation. Um, in order to have more living space. And they said, you know, we're not going to be easy on the West like the Nazis were. We're going to be ruthless and uh, should uh, understand that the, the Chinese do have a ruthless streak in them about treating other conquered people as anyone who's lived under Chinese occupation has found out. But um, you see, the, the problem that we're facing is that not only do Russia which, as I've explained in my World Affairs Brief subscribers, faked their own demise in 1989 and 90 in order to get Western aid and trade and put Russian peoples into Ukraine, into the borders of Ukraine and the Baltic states to have an excuse to attack someday in the future when they wanted to reconstitute the Soviet Union. 
Both Russia, China want this war, and also the Western globalists want this Third World War. Your readers need to understand that the U.S. globalists have been building communist enemies for decades. They gave $20 million to the Bolsheviks to start the revolution. Britain gave an additional $20 million in gold to the Bolsheviks. We cut off military aid to the white Russians to make sure the Bolsheviks won. We brought Mao Zedong to power by cutting off military aid to Batista, uh, to uh, Chiang Kai-shek. We brought uh, Castro to power by cutting off military aid to Batista. We brought the Sandinistas to power in Nicaragua by cutting off military aid to Somoza. And the list goes on and on of how we've undermined Western countries in order to bring communists to power. Not because the globalists are communists. And there are too many conservatives talking about letting the communists take over this country. No, it's the globalists that are a threat. They're using communists and even BLM and Antifa communists in order to break down the social order in a Hegelian dialectic where they create conflict and crises so that they come in and save us with a solution that we would not normally attend. And the reason for the globalists wanting this preemptive nuclear strike on our military is so they can come out of their bunkers and say, well, we didn't know this was going to happen, which is a lie. But now that has happened, the only way that we can defend ourselves and prosecute this war is by joining in a militarized global government. And I believe this new EU army that is being formed and funded in secret in Europe is the seed stock for a new global military post-nuclear strike. But I think, uh, you know, you might ask the question, well, how does the U.S. intend to win a nuclear war when you absorb a nuclear first strike? And by the way, we have a military doctrine that was signed in 1997 during the Clinton administration, Presidential Decision Directive 60, which specifically dictates to our missile forces to absorb a nuclear first strike and not launch on warning. Now, launch on warning is very important because if you launch on warning when our satellites detect a launch by Chinese and Russian missile forces, then their missiles hit empty silos and our missiles that launch hit legitimate targets. So the one who launches on warning wins the war, not the one who launches first. And that's one of the reasons why I think our pacifists uh, dictated such a suicidal policy in 1997. General Butch Neal of the Marine Corps said, retaliate with what once you've absorbed a nuclear first strike? <laughs> now, we have some submarines out there. About half of our 14 ballistic missile submarines are on duty at any one time. The rest are in port and can be targeted. But um, those warheads on the Trident missiles are not capable of, of hitting uh, hardened underground targets like Yamato Mountain and the 3,000 miles of underground Chinese military targets. So it's, it's a difficult uh, scenario. But I think um, that the most likely trigger event for World War III is going to be a war in Taiwan or South Korea. And if you see that happen within a week, I think we'll be in, in a third world war. That could be the match that, that lights everything on fire. Uh, yeah. That's very interesting. And, and I, I do want to do a follow-up episode with you to get into the Russia-China possibilities. But going back to the war in the Middle East, I find it really fascinating that this whole anti-Semitic uh, college campus free speech issue came to the fore, where you have uh, the majority of the Ivy League schools actually have Jewish uh, presidents. And then the few that are not uh, Jewish 
were put up on the stand and grilled about why they allowed anti-Semitic uh, comments and protests and, and speech on their campus. And, and two of them stepped down or were fired. And so I'm just wanted to find out from you, what is the is, is Israel lobby like, the Israel um, power structure like? Is it embedded in the U.S.? Uh, what is that relationship like? Who's, who's the puppet and who's the puppet master when it comes to the U.S. and Israel? Well, it's a complex question because um, it, it goes clear back to the Holocaust and why the mainstream media promoted to such a degree, degree the Holocaust. And while it did happen, and clearly they went after uh, the Jews un unjustly. There was some exaggeration about the numbers and about the use of the gas chambers, et cetera, and uh, has been disputed. But what I think wanted to happen is that because there's so many um, uh, intellectual Jews in the hierarchy of the globalist conspiracy against national sovereignty and liberty, uh, the globalists wanted to create a kind of immunity for Jewish leaders involved in those things so that any criticism would be viewed as anti-Semitism. And so you can't criticize Israel legitimately without being called an anti-Semite. Um, and you can't uh, criticize the war without being anti-Semitic. The Jewish lobby is extremely powerful. Almost no politician can get elected in the United States if they don't uh, at least give tacit verbal support to Israel and as I say, no nation is completely free of guilt in, in, in wars that they create, let alone the United States. Uh, but we've created a mantra within Western society that any criticism of Jews is anti-Semitic, even if it's uh, legitimate or not. Now, I don't pretend there's a lot of conservatives that talk about the Zionists. Well, not all Jews are Zionists. In fact, Zionists don't end up being religious Jews at all. They could care less about their own religion. Um, but I choose to criticize globalism as the real entity. Now, that includes significant Jews like George Soros and Zbigniew Brzezinski and Henry Kissinger, who just died, etc. There have been a lot of Jews involved, in, <clears throat> especially in the rise of the Soviet Union, Leon Trotsky, for example, and, and others, uh, uh, involved in the Bolsheviks were Jews and uh, even against their own people. But it's not because that they are religious Jews or defending the people. It's because they are um, part of a globalist conspiracy. I, so I condemn globalist leaders, and that includes what Jews are involved there, not Jews in particular. Uh, the world doesn't run. Not a lot of people you know, will say, well, the Jews did 9-11, and that isn't true at all. It was our own deep state that did 9-11, uh, from the hiring of the terrorists to the loading of the buildings with explosives to the technology that allowed them to remote control some of the airliners. <clears throat> right. And so what you've said before is that these globalists don't have uh, a communist ideology. It's a convenient ideology for them to use to to weaken our, our national sovereignty and the sovereignty of other countries. Uh, and, and so same deal goes for uh, Judaism. It's, it's not necessarily their uh, ideology or their religion. It, it's something that they can identify with uh, as, a, as a form of immunity is the way you, you described it. So in that case, what is the globalist ideology? Is it just pure fascism, uh, that type of 
um, grandiose, narcissistic, psychopathic kind of idea, or is there um, a, a religiosity to them, a sa- a satanic kind of thing? What's your take on that? You only have a few minutes left, but uh, yeah, it's a big question. But whatever you have. Well, uh, it is my belief that all three globalist predator centers, Russia, China, and the, and the Anglo-American globalists are satanic based. There's no way that these conspiracies can go on for centuries, generations without being spiritually driven. And now this is not religion in the sense it's anti-religion, uh, being Satan, uh, based, but, uh, you know, there's no mafia chieftain that can establish a 200-year plan for his own conspiracy and expect his family to continue that. Um, it just doesn't happen. You have to have continual spiritual direction. So just as I believe in God, I think that there is satanic revelation as well to his people, but only at the very top. There's a whole mix of globalists. Most of the globalists, like in the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, who consider an AI robotic society, you know, they don't know that the top-level globalists are, are going to give us a world war that's going to destroy the ability to have an AI robotic society. This war is going to be preceded by about 15, 20 minutes by an EMP strike that's going to take down the grid for over a year because we don't stockpile the long-distance transformers that allow you to – they're all made in China to you know get the grid back up and running. And so you can't have an AI robotic society without a constant flow of electricity and a constant flow of good moral people to keep order in society. And we're losing that as well. Right. Well, this is fascinating. I definitely want to do a follow-up episode about World War III. So thank you for your insight, Uh, Joel. Really appreciate it. And everyone can go to your website, sign up for World Affairs Brief. And this is Sean Morgan signing out. You can go to get my breaking news updates at seanmorganreport.com. God bless. All you patriots, good night, good luck.